This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Wednesday, November 15th. On the pod today, Israeli troops raid Gaza's largest hospital, searching for signs of Hamas. We'll ask the Israel Defense Forces about what it is calling a precise and targeted operation. Then, Prime Minister Trudeau is facing backlash over his comments that Israel should exercise maximum restraint in its war against Hamas. The power panel on Trudeau's change in tone. And we ask Canada's ambassador to Egypt whether the Prime Minister's comments will hinder his work to get Canadians out of Gaza. We begin today at Gaza's Al-Shifa Hospital, where Israel's military claims it has found evidence of a Hamas command center. There are currently thousands of displaced and wounded Palestinian civilians sheltering at Al-Shifa, a hospital that is on the brink of collapse. The CBC's Briar Stewart is in Jerusalem. So, Briar, what more do we know about Israel's raid on Al-Shifa and the latest from the hospital itself? Well, we know that Israeli soldiers are still in the hospital. It's a sprawling complex made up of several buildings. And this evening they put out a video uh, as well as photos that they took from the site, uh, basically trying to to justify why they were in the hospital in the first place. And in the video, which of course we cannot verify ourselves, um, they have a spokesperson going from room to room showing what they say they found, a backpack full of uh, weapons. They say that they found uh, AK-47 rifles, including some near an MRI machine and uh, a laptop that they believe will have a lot of uh, intelligence value on it. Now, they didn't mention anything about tunnels, uh, which is is key considering they have been saying this whole time that there are, uh, they believe there's a Hamas command center under the uh, Al-Shifa hospital. After they put out the video, Hamas uh, put out a statement saying that they saw it as as pure propaganda. Um, But I have to say that I've been talking to several of the doctors inside the hospital over recent days, including including a doctor that I was able to reach this morning, uh, Dr. Mohammed Obed. He's a surgeon with Doctors Without Borders. And he basically described um, what was happening to me as it unfolded. He said that, you know, the fighting had, around the hospital had just been growing more intense in recent days and that in the middle of the night, Israeli tanks moved in, then the soldiers entered the hospital. And he said that they were basically told to stay where they were, uh, to not look out the window because there was gunfire uh, erupting all around. And he said that his manager told him there was a the military, the Israeli military, was operating in the basement of the hospital, which makes sense considering they, they said that they were looking, you know, for some kind of, of, of command center. And it is, I think, important to note, too, that uh, the Israeli military has said that they haven't found any evidence of hostages being in the vicinity. Okay, uh, that's interesting on the development there at Al-Shifa, which has been the center point of a lot of the, the global debate in, in the last couple of days. So at this point in the conflict, Breyer, what is the international reaction to, to, to this war? Well, I think over recent days, the international pressure has been building on Israel, uh, global concern, certainly. And I think when the Israeli forces entered the hospital, it, you know, it ratcheted up even more. We've heard a lot of reaction from uh, international agencies. The World Health Organization called uh, Israel's presence there completely unacceptable, saying hospitals are not battlefields. You had the top uh, aid chief for the UN saying that it was appalling. And you've had the UN Security Council just pass a resolution 
calling for humanitarian pauses, which is what a lot of leaders and different agencies have been saying in recent days. But of course, Israel uh, is is not keen on a on a ceasefire at all. I mean, their entire goal in this is to eliminate Hamas after what happened on October 7th that left 1,200 people dead and uh, 240 people hostage. I do also want to mention reaction that we heard from the Prime Minister. Now, this was um, earlier, but what uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said was that the world was witnessing the killing of women, children and babies. And that was uh, quite strong criticism. And in fact, the Prime Minister of Israel kind of fired back at that on Twitter, saying it wasn't Israel that was harming civilians. They were trying to protect civilians and that it was Hamas that was using them as human shields. Uh, but it will be interesting to see just how long Israel is in that hospital for and and what comes out of it. I mean, we aren't able to reach any of the doctors right now. It seems that there's a total communication blackout. The cell phones aren't working. Uh, so we really don't have an accurate picture of the state of things. Um, and once we do find out more, it will be interesting to see what the international reaction is. Okay, Breyer, thanks very much. That's the CBC's Breyer Stewart in Jerusalem. Well, as Breyer mentioned, Israel Defense Forces spokesperson, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, was at Al Shifa Hospital today. And the IDF released a six-minute unedited video of Conricus showing what he says the Israeli military has discovered in this hospital. Here is a montage of that video edited for brevity. Security cameras have been obstructed. All of the security cameras are uh, covered. There is a, an AK-47. There are cartridges, am- ammo. Uh, there are uh, grenades in here. Of course, uniformed. And all of that, this was hidden very conveniently, secretly behind the MRI machine. When our troops open this uh, closet here, which is in the main part of the clinic, this is what they found. These weapons have absolutely no business being inside a hospital. A live grenade, ammunition, fighting vest with insignia, boots and of course uniforms, and last but not least, standard AK-47. Tactical radio communications, which we will analyze. Lots of disks, which will be analyzed. And a computer, which at first glance already provides a lot of incriminating for more on the situation at Gaza's largest hospital, I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Amnon Scheffler in Tel Aviv. He is a spokesperson for the Israel Defense Forces. Lieutenant Colonel, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We've just shown some of the footage of your colleague, uh, Jonathan Conricus, who was at Al Shifa Hospital today. Uh, it shows taped over security cameras, uh, some bags of weapons, some military gear, a laptop, radio, some compact discs. Is this the extent of what was found at the hospital by the IDF today? This is a a substantial uh, information that is being uh, found inside. And this is, of course, based on the intelligence that we had before and also that our counterparts, including the U.S., have affirmed independently. Um, And we also know that for weeks we have been calling for civilians and patients to leave the hospital because it is being used by Hamas, deliberately used uh, by Hamas. So we also know that they had the time to evacuate different equipment uh, from there. Okay, but uh, when when, uh, your your intelligence services a few weeks ago released an animated video showing uh, Al-Shifa being used as a command center, they showed subterranean tunnels and subterranean uh, uh, command centers. Has anything like that been uncovered uh, by your forces since they they took control of the the facility? So first, uh, we are acting in a very specific part of uh, the hospital with a a very uh, trained force 
that is entered into a specific part of the hospital in order not to uh, harm, of course, any civilians and patients uh, that are in the area and to minimize any kind of friction that uh, could be. So we are still operating in a small part of uh, that hospital and we're acting still there now looking for more terrorists and more activity that is done and that was done in that facility. So it is the plan to, to find this subterranean command center and these tunnels uh, while the IDF is, is in Al-Shifa right now? Will the operation be expanded to see that? Because I think that's what most people were expecting uh, to be shown as proof that this was in fact a command center. The MO of uh, Hamas as a terrorist organization is to deliberately embed itself in the most populated areas. And these are schools, uh, these are kindergartens and mosques, and also hospitals like we saw in the Vantisi hospital, like we saw in the Al-Quds hospital, and like we're seeing also here in the Shifa hospital. And with our goal of this uh, war is to dismantle Hamas, we are going after them wherever they are. Um, and in, this includes into the hospital where we know that they have been acting and carrying out terrorist activity from within it. Right. But I, but I guess I, I'm wondering if you say right now the operation is in a very specific part of the hospital. The MRI facility, I believe, is what it is. Will it go into these other areas where you have put out photos and, and, and reconstructions, video reconstructions showing where the tunnels are and, and the subterranean command centers are? It's like, will, will we see actual evidence of that beyond the animated video? We're acting there operationally, and we're also collecting uh, the evidence. And once uh, we have that, we will share it uh, with everyone to see like we have done. We have uh, been very open, of course, uh, to the press uh, to join us uh, coming into these uh, uh, areas that are under continuous uh, fire and fighting um, in order to show to the world really how Hamas operates and uh, what they have done. I remind everyone that Hamas has also done this by themselves on October 7th. They came in with GoPros on themselves and wanted to air that to the world, the massacre that they carried out. Um, so we're also uh, going to expose how they are using these installations to carry out their terrorist activity. I wonder if you can give us a, a sense of the, the fighting presence Hamas had at Al-Shifa. I, I know the press release or the statements from the IDF says that you killed, in your words, a number of terrorists. How, how many fighters were there? How many are still there? Uh, how, how many were killed? Can you give us some precision on that? So fighting in the vicinity of uh, the hospital has been happening uh, continuously and also yesterday before entering uh, the hospital. Um, and it's uh, continuously happening also in the areas. Um, and uh, um, I can't say specifically how many um, uh, terrorists were killed in, in that engagement, uh, but th throughout the whole fighting, dozens of terrorists have been killed in that vicinity. In that vicinity. What about inside the facility itself? Was there any firefight inside the Al-Shifa compound? No, there wasn't? No fighting was inside uh, the compound, although we did find, as uh, mentioned, uh, military equipment and uh, including the AK-47s and uniform that were left behind. So I don't know how they left uh, the area, but we can guess. Okay, so what is your expectation? You say operations are continuing there. I wonder how much longer do you think uh, it will happen inside the hospital? Will the hospital be allowed to return operation? Or now that the IDF is in there, do you intend to stay? Because if this is a command and control center, I can't imagine you would want to cede it back. What are, what are the immediate plans for this facility and your forces? 
We have two very clear goals for uh, our operations. One is to dismantle Hamas and two, to bring out, to bring back the 239 hostages that have been held for 40 days in Gaza. In regards to the hospital, we're doing everything in order to allow it and to uh, give the patients the best care that uh, we can. We have brought today incubators uh, to assist with that. We have brought fuel uh, to the hospital, uh, putting our own soldiers in risk when bringing that fuel to the hospital. We have allowed and called for the eastern part of the hospital to be used as a humanitarian exit, uh, continuously talking to the directors of uh, the hospital. And we've also invited any international organization and countries that wish to help with uh, putting up hosp field hospitals in the southern part of Gaza, where for many, many days we have called the civilians and the innocent people to move to that area so that they can get any treatment and any humanitarian assistance that they need. But there are still military strikes in the southern part of Gaza, right? We spoke to a Palestinian-Canadian woman whose family is in southern Gaza, and, and, and 14 of them were, were killed by a missile strike in the last couple of days. She's now lost more than 100 people in her extended family in Gaza. And I know you say you've given them weeks to get out of Al-Shifa and other hospitals, but there's no surplus hospital capacity anywhere in Gaza. So, so where do they go if, if there's still military strikes against the south and there's no hospitals with space and, and, and supplies are scarce? The South is the safer area because we have started from the main headquarters and the main area that uh, Hamas operates, which is the Gaza City. And we know that Hamas, as I mentioned before, deliberately positions itself in the most populated areas. And that is why Hamas also operates from the South. They don't limit themselves to the city of Gaza where military conflict can happen. They are shooting rockets. At this moment, we are over 10 thousand rockets that have been fired from the Gaza Strip, including from the south part of the Gaza Strip at Israeli civilians. And as I mentioned, we are there, of course, to stop Hamas from continuous terrorist activity, wherever that is. Yet we are limiting our uh, operations in the southern area, and we're trying to do everything that we can including today refueling UNRWA cars and letting in uh, over 100 trucks to assist in the southern part. Um, and, and that's what we'll continue doing, um, but uh, going after Hamas wherever they are. Yeah, I'm certainly not suggesting Hamas has stopped. I, I know they continue to fire and their leadership has been on television saying they'll do October 7th again and again and again. So like, certainly I, I'm not trying to suggest uh, they, they are not uh, uh, persisting in, in their aggression. Uh, but the, the civilian toll is causing some consternation. Certainly here in Canada, just yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau urged Israel, in his words, to exercise maximum restraint. He says the price of justice for October 7th can't be the continued suffering of all Palestinians. I, I wonder what your response is to comments like that from Western countries like Canada. I respect very much what uh, Prime Minister Trudeau said and agree pretty much with everything he said, and that's what we're doing. We are trying to mitigate in the best ways the way to counter uh, Hamas and uh, uh, stop them from ever being able to carry out another attack like October 7th. And also, we know how Hamas operates. They are using the civilians of Gaza as their human shields. And this is the cost of that kind of battle. And sadly, we don't want to see any life lost, not Israelis, not Palestinians, and not anyone else. Uh, and that is why we're fighting this fight, in order to never see these kind of pictures and these kind of horrifics happen again.
I understand what you're saying there, that Hamas is using human shields, and I think that's widely accepted. This is a tactic that they do use. Uh, But Israel still makes the choice, right? And I know all the concepts of the laws of war and proportionality are all taken into consideration. But for people who don't live in that world, they're seeing a, a civilian death toll that is rising, and you're seeing dead kids, you're seeing dead women, and it's just they see a tragedy that's spiraling, and, and, and people are calling for a ceasefire uh, increasingly. I, I mean, how do you feel the world is going to react to the mounting death toll as a result of, of your military operations, regardless of what Hamas is doing? Uh, people want this conflict to pause, if not end entirely. We want it also to end, but we need it to end in a way that we can return to safety and know that this will never happen again. And this is the challenge, but that is why we are going after it. And we have to meet the goals that we have set in order to be sure that the massacre of October 7th will never happen again. And we're also sure that after we do this, not only that Israelis will be safer, but also Palestinians within the Gaza Strip will be safer without Hamas being there. Lieutenant Colonel Emnon Scheffler with the Israel Defense Forces. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Thank you for having us. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is urging Israel to exercise maximum restraint in its military operation in Gaza. The world is witnessing this. The killing of women and children, of babies. This has stop. Those final comments are not playing well with Israel's prime minister. In a tweet aimed at Trudeau last night, Benjamin Netanyahu insisted Israel is not deliberately targeting civilians. He said, quote, while Israel is doing everything to keep civilians out of harm's way, Hamas is doing everything to keep them in harm's way. Israel provides civilians in Gaza humanitarian corridors and safe zones. Hamas prevents them from leaving at gunpoint. It is Hamas, not Israel, should be held accountable for committing a double war crime, targeting civilians while hiding behind civilians. Louis Dumas is Canada's ambassador to Egypt. He is in Cairo. Ambassador, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the statement from Israel's prime minister criticizing our prime minister for the comments he made yesterday with Prime Minister Netanyahu insisting Israel does everything to keep civilians out of harm's way and that it's Hamas's fault so many people are dying because civilians are being used as human shields. Uh, What is your sense on, on Israel's claim that it is doing everything it can to keep civilians out of harm's way? Is that what the people are telling you as they come out of Gaza? It's, a, it's an extremely complex conflict. I mean, we have to acknowledge that. It's deep-rooted. It's uh, a lot of emotions involved in this. Um, I think there's also a lot of finger-pointing on both sides. But I think if, you, if we can take a step back as a, you know, as a country, and Canada is a well-respected ally in the region, I think it's time for a bit of humanity in, the, uh, in our reflection about this conflict. We see people suffering on both sides. We see atrocities on both sides. I think, you know, it's time to take a, uh, uh, I would say, a pause. And as we have been advocating for humanitarian pauses, I think it's time to have a pause and, and just reflect about the whole thing. You deal with Israel in your efforts to get Canadians and their families and permanent residents out of Gaza. They play a key role in vetting the lists of foreign nationals that would be allowed to leave. Any concerns that this... Um 
flare-up between the two prime ministers with Mr. Netanyahu criticizing Mr. Trudeau could, could affect those operations? Not necessarily. I think, you know, it's like having a good friend and uh, disagreeing on different uh, matters. I think there's great respect still between, you know, the two countries. And certainly looking at it here from Egypt, I think Canada is a respected partner in, in the region. So at the end of the day, I mean, as you point out, it's Israel and Egypt that uh, control the, uh, the attribution of spots, you know, of names on the list. And uh, while it's not in, in our control, I mean, we do everything in, in our zone of influence to make sure that more Canadians are on the list. We still have 250 uh, people, Canadians, uh, permanent residents and family members to bring from Gaza into Egypt. And we're totally committed at uh, making sure they come home. There, there was no Canadians on the list now today. Uh, I think it's been a couple of days. So you did have that one very successful day when you got more than 200 people yeah. out in, in one day. Why no Canadians on the list right now? What's the reason for that? Well, we had two Canadians today. So there's a few individuals who were on previous lists that did manage to come through today. So we had two today. So in total, we have uh, received, welcomed 356 Canadian permanent residents and family members to, uh, to Egypt. As I said, there's approximately 250 to go. I think we have to acknowledge as well, there's a number of countries, you know, vying for a, a favorable position to get on the list, approximately 60 countries. At the beginning of the operation, there was about 7,500 foreign nationals. So the fact that we've managed to get approximately 60% of uh, you know, the total Canadians you know, from Gaza into Egypt, I think it's very reassuring. So as I said, you know, we're committed to bring each and every of those individuals to Canada. And uh, this is my commitment here from Cairo. So, so do you have a sense, sir, on, on when the next big group of Canadians or a more regular departure of Canadians uh, might begin? Because there's, say, about 250 people, so still a sizable cohort in there. That's correct. We don't have a, a sense of when at this point, but uh, we work very closely with the Israeli authorities. The Canadian embassy in Tel Aviv is extremely active. Our office in Ramallah as well is... Uh, also involved in the negotiations. I mean, here in Egypt, I mean, we talk on the almost uh, hourly with uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We try to influence as much as possible. But in preparation for that, you know, we have a team in Rafa at the moment, waiting patiently for Canadians to arrive, working with other nations. You know, as soon as we have individual uh, crossing, we can send them to, to Cairo and onwards, hopefully, to, uh, to Canada. There's been some frustration and criticism from families that it's taken so long. Uh, understandably, their, their emotions are, are running high because of this. A lot of them are, are blaming Canada uh, for the delays. What, why has it taken so long? I mean, the, the, obviously, it's a complex thing with a lot of competing interests. What, what has been the biggest issue, do you think, in, in terms of getting all the Canadian spots on that list so they can get out? Well, we have to recognize, first and foremost, that uh, we're dealing with a zone of extreme conflict. Uh, a place where bomb explode, where uh, shots are fired, it is extremely, extremely difficult to get these individuals out of uh, out of Gaza. I think you know there was no, uh, I would say, lack of effort on the part of Canada. It is a complex situation, but let me assure you, as soon as we could, you know, have influence on the matter and bring, as I said, Canadians, permanent residents, and family members out of Gaza into Egypt. So we can allow them to, you know, move on with their lives, find a bit of peace, uh, 
and and possibly you know start you know their life again in Canada. We did so, and I have to recognize, as I've mentioned before, I mean the efforts done by our embassies, you know, in the region, you know, our offices in the region, the folks in Canada who've been working 24/7 on this issue. I think you know to say that uh, Canada has uh, has. Uh, in lagging behind, I would I would take it with a grain of salt, to be frank with you. I think, you know, we've done everything we can, and we're still committed. Looking ahead, we're still committed at bringing the remaining 250 individuals from Gaza into Egypt. I, I've spoken with some people here uh, in Canada who are working on this particular operation, and they tell me that there have been dozens of people who've been offered a chance to get on the list to get out, but because the family members they have in Gaza are unable to leave because of their citizenship status, they, they've chosen to stay, even though they had a path to safety through Rafah uh, into Egypt. Uh, how, how many Canadians or uh, people potentially that Canada could have gotten on the list ha- have opted to stay in Gaza for those reasons? That number, we don't know. It's, uh, but one thing I can say, however, those are very difficult decisions. Um, I can only imagine people having lives in Gaza, um, you know, having to decide whether to leave family members uh, behind, having to make tough choices. It is very difficult. But from a Canadian perspective, you know, from the government of Canada's perspective, we have to offer them a path to safety. We have to offer them a solution to uh, continue their lives in a, in a, in a different context. And, uh, but I know for a fact those are heartbreaking decisions. When we talk to evacuees here in Cairo, people are really, really are torn by, by the decisions they have to make. So we try to give them a comfort, you know, give them a space for reflection and help them you know, as much as possible with the road ahead. All of the competing interests, as we've discussed, other countries trying to get on the list, limited access and entry points. Julie Sunday, who is the top bureaucrat working on this file, your colleague, she said this whole experience has been, in her words, profoundly frustrating. Is that how you're feeling right now, Ambassador? I think, you know, I was at the interview when uh, Madame Sunday uh, said that, and I said it, it's been difficult. Frustrating is uh, certainly uh, an adjective that could be used, but... I would say difficult because we have to remember that not only do we have to get people out of a zone of conflict, then we have to take them from Rafa to Cairo on a road that takes usually about eight to 10 hours and uh, through a zone that has been uh, where we have told Canadians not to go to for the past 10 years. It's a very dangerous area of Egypt and uh, I have to command, you know, the Egyptian forces at securing the uh, the corridor between Rafa and Cairo, but it's very difficult. I cannot under, under, underestimate, you know, the difficulties that uh, we're facing. But I take great, uh, I would say, great pride and, and great uh, satisfaction at having 356 of the 600 Canadian permanent residents and family members out of out of Gaza. But still, we still have work to be done. Still have 250 people to to bring out. And we're absolutely committed to that. Louis Dumas, Canada's ambassador to Egypt. Thank you for your time today, sir. Thank you very much. Shame on you! You have blood on your hands! Call for a ceasefire! Call for a ceasefire! That was a scene in a Vancouver restaurant last night where Prime Minister Trudeau was dining. That protest followed these comments on Israel. 
I urge the government of Israel to exercise maximum restraint. The world is witnessing this. The killing of women and children, of babies. This has to stop. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu responded to Trudeau on social media, posting this. Israel provides civilians in Gaza humanitarian corridors and safe zones. Hamas prevents them from leaving at gunpoint. It is Hamas, not Israel, that should be held accountable for committing a double war crime, targeting civilians while hiding behind civilians. But at that same event yesterday, Trudeau called out Hamas, noting the killing of Israeli-Canadian peace activist Vivian Silver. Hamas needs to stop using Palestinians as human shields. They need to release all hostages immediately and unconditionally. Hamas has said that they would commit horrors like October 7th over and over again. The same violent attack that killed so many civilians, including Vivian Silver. Okay, so what will Canadians make of all of this? It's time to bring in the power panel. Jonathan Kalis is a former Quebec, Quebec advisor, excuse me, to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, now with Macmillan Vantage. Here with me in studio, Tim Powers is the chair of Summa Strategies. Jordan Likeness is the Canada Program Manager for the Frederick Ebert Foundation. And Sherelle Evelyn is the managing editor of the Hill Times. You're not sitting in that order, but you know. <laughs> all right, uh, Jonathan, I, I'd like to start with you, if I could. I, I mean, we saw what the Prime Minister had to say there yesterday, and we've heard the reaction to it. Uh, some frustration and anger, really, in all directions, being aimed at Justin Trudeau. Trudeau. What's your sense of, of what's played out? Well, you know, there's a policy and there's a political aspect of all of this. From a policy perspective, not much has changed over five and a half weeks. Uh, the government has been consistent in saying that Israel has a right to defend itself. It's got to do it while doing its best to protect civilians, that Hamas is a terrorist group, that they're responsible for this, uh, and sort of giving Israel um, the cover it needs to finish Hamas off so that it doesn't repeat what it did on October 7th. The political perspective is where I think he continues to get into trouble. Um, yes, he called out Hamas last night more aggressively than he has until now, um, but he did that at the same time, is admonishing Israel. Now, calling for maximum restraint is a different way of saying what he said until now. But when you start to add in implications of dead babies and... Uh, do it in an accusatory way. That resonates, well, pretty negatively in the Jewish community. You're hearing the backlash. You posted it from, from Netanyahu, but you've heard it from Jewish community leaders, and I've been hearing it last night and all day today. Um, it is very triggering to talk about dead babies. It's part of a long-standing conspiracy theory that's not what his intention was, but that's how people react, that's what I've been hearing all day. Right. And in the situation where anti-Semitism is at record highs, I've never felt um, mm -hmm. this kind of reaction in the Jewish community my whole life. People are sincerely fearful, fearful of sending their kids to school. I mean, one of the schools that was shot at is a school that I went to. So um, in that context, I think um, his juggling act of trying to make everyone happy has actually made everyone unhappy. And from the Jewish community's perspective, I think that's why you're sensing this degree of outrage. Right. So, so Tim, uh, you know, uh, Jonathan seizes yes. on the tone issue with the way the prime minister spoke yesterday. In substance, it wasn't radically different from what Emmanuel Macron has said, uh, from what Joe Biden has said. But it seems when you look at the way this is playing out across the country, there is no 
middle position a prime minister can take on this. And look, I, I'm certainly not walking in Jonathan's shoes, so I don't have the deep personal understanding and family connections that Jonathan does, so please understand that when I respond here. I, I do think, though, where I would differ a little bit from Jonathan is in the, 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 the language, the very specific use. Jonathan talked about babies, but I'm going to focus on maximum uh, restraint. That comes across as being uh, a place where the Prime Minister hasn't been before. Certainly this government's had some trouble and they've not been alone in it, whether you'd have a ceasefire, a humanitarian pause. The challenge I find uh, with maximum restraint, and I think many of the people Jonathan's talked about who've also reacted to that language, is it can be used will be used, is being used by Hamas and others who um, are concerned less about the well-being of Israeli children, Palestinian children, are more concerned about scoring points uh, with their um, their aggressor supporters. Maximum mm -hmm. restraint, I think, was too far. Some of his language, and Jordan and I were talking about this earlier, was akin to Emmanuel Macron uh, and what he has said. Yep. Uh, but maximum restraint was too far. It's a difficult job, but the Prime Minister, I think, has to do better not using language that can be weaponized to further uh, aggravate the circumstances we find ourselves in. Yeah, and aggregate, given the way yes, this and is taken aggregate, off on, yes, on, on yes, social media. Jordan, what's your, your take on it all? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's interesting. We were chatting a little bit before about what Macron had said. And, and of course, I actually, I think Macron was, was further than Trudeau. where He, he wants did, a ceasefire, the whole works. That's right. right. He yeah. was talking about working towards a ceasefire, uh, which is somewhere that Prime Minister Trudeau has not been willing to go in his comments yet. But I don't think it's accidental that we did see a stepping up of the Prime Minister's tone and comments a day after speaking with Macron. Um, it's clear that, you know, there is a shift in his tone and his approach here. And I think that part of the challenge that we're seeing is that, you know, in Canada, we do a broad political consensus about the right of Israel to defend itself in accordance with international law. But then at the same time, what we see unfolding in Gaza, there are clearly also things that are happening that are not in accordance with international humanitarian law. And so the prime minister has to, and I don't envy this job, but he is trying to chart a path there where he can express and have comments that are critical about what the Israeli government is doing in that military action um, while still maintaining the status of Canada as a friend of Israel. Um, and I think that this is really evidence of the difficulty of walking that path without going uh, all the way to a ceasefire. Cheryl, I, I, maybe I'm walking on thin ice here. There may be a broad political, political consensus, I want to emphasize political consensus, on Israel's right to defend itself. Uh, I'm not so sure there's a broad societal consensus on that in Canada anymore. With the protests we're seeing, the demographic and generational changes we've seen in this country, it's shifted that, uh, if not shattered it in some way. What, what's your sense of where the country is right now? Well, I think, and I can't, and I can't recall right off the top of my head who did the polling. There was polling that, in the, and there is still, mm -hmm. um, you know, a societal, I think, consensus that people do feel that Israel has a right to defend itself. However, there is also this, I would say, a massive plurality of Canadians who also are saying, but we also want to cease fire. Mm -hmm. So it's so for many people there is that you know that dichotomy and and it's it is hard to find that middle ground of like where do those two positions meet i don't know where those two positions meet and i think that's the problem is that yes there is this shift you know from you know october 7th obviously there was a big 
you know, swell of support as there should have been because something horrific happened. And that was Hamas attacked Israel Mm -hmm. um, and killed, you know, over a thousand people. Like, that's indisputable. But as time goes on and weeks go on, and I I understand that there is, you know, this this feeling about um, anti this rise in anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. It's not just a feeling; it's a it's a fact. Oh, no, it's a it's thing. A, yeah. It is a fact. Like it's a proven fact. Um, but at the same time, people are dying, and there is this swell of okay, we understand that something terrible happened, but now something else terrible is happening, and people are dying. And you know whether or not you believe the numbers that Hamas is putting out about how many people have died in 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 Gaza, like there are still like, like thousands of people who are dying. And so there is this this crutch of like, okay, so where does where do you find the humanity in mm-hmm. that? How do you support the humanity in that? And I think that's where uh, the Prime Minister is falling into this trouble of how do I navigate that road between those two? Because you want to be supportive of the humanity of, of you know, of human life, but also how do you stay being a friend to Israel? Right. And, and you actually said what I was trying to say much better. Uh, there, there's not a lack of societal consensus on the right to defend itself. Mm-hmm. But, Jonathan, there may be a shifting view on how it is defending itself, right, which is one of the challenges in, in talking about what's happening here when you see the images, when you see the casualties. So how do you talk about this? Like, And, and I'm sorry, you know. The school you went to got shot at, and these are awful things that shouldn't be happening. But how do we talk about what Israel is doing in response to what happened October 7th without it seem like it's an endorsement of October 7th? Do you know what I mean? This is the, the challenge in, in this conversation in some ways. with some guidance from you on it? Well, I, I think it's easier to say how you shouldn't talk about it. Um, that may be that may be just the easier way of saying it, is that whether it's the protests against the prime minister or against other ministers who are countering this every day, um, whether it's metro stations in Montreal yesterday getting plastered, um, let alone Jewish institutions, Jewish schools being shot at is one thing you're seeing now Jewish businesses. Um, So whether it's criticizing the government or whether it's criticizing the Jewish community by extension for being responsible, what's going on in Israel, the way not to talk about it is And I'm not saying don't protest or don't allow protests. I'm saying the vitriol, the the degree of anger, I understand. But the incitement, that's where it crosses the line. I think the prime minister has been clear on that. I think we all would like to see more action. And he's not the one going out arresting people. But I think how you allow people to express themselves freely um, and get it out of their system is to pull out the very loud but relatively fringe parts of it and say, no, you guys are offside. And I think we all know when it hits the offside line. Uh, I think it's pretty consensual, but we need to call it out. And it needs to also come from within protesters themselves who say, listen, I'm protesting, I'm angry about Gaza, but that's not okay. And we're not hearing that yet. And I, I don't know where we, how we stop it necessarily. It's not snap your fingers because the emotions are so high. It's in, can I just add yeah, something there, too? I mean, it, look, in these circumstances, if we all exist in polemics all the time, in language, we're not going to get unboxed from the, the, from the polemics. It's, it's disheartening to watch the drive of some Western leaders who are intending to try and get Israel perhaps to 
take more of a pause or a ceasefire to rest the carnage, though, are, are borrowing language that has been inflamed by ag- aggressors like Hamas. I, I, I don't know how you stop that. Perhaps, as Jonathan says, it's, uh, it's some of the things you stop saying. But we we are missing the ability to have and this is not a shot at the prime minister but or any of the leaders per se but we we miss a a, a statesmanlike figure who can go in and in the past that may have been a foreign leader from the US it's certainly not and this is not to denigrate Joe Biden but we're missing a senior state sort of figure who can bring about, you know, the two-state solution, can bring about healing, who can bring people together. Right now, people are still being bridged apart and not being brought together. Maybe that's not possible. The thing I would say, though, as it relates to Israel, and I think that is what Netanyahu and others want us to remember, is that, again, not a traditional war, fighting a terrorist organization who is hell-bent on destroying Israel and its people at any means. And I get that he doesn't want people to forget that, though the imagery of war, be it this war or any other war, makes it very hard to build broader public support, no matter the intent of your intentions. Jordan, are you seeing any, like, the Prime Minister tried to address this a little bit last mm-hmm. night about how we can't keep turning on each other, speaking as Canadians. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's happening uh, in the streets of most major cities in this country on the daily and weekly basis. And Parliament has spent more time talking about 3% of home heating oil users getting a carve-out as tearing the country apart when this stuff is doing real mm-hmm. long-term damage mm-hmm. to our communities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, the you know, of course, the rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia is real and it's dangerous. And actually, it was already happening before October 7th, but it's, 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 it's caught fire and it's accelerated in a way that's so dangerous. And that's why I think, mm-hmm. you know, when you see, uh, when you see any uh, political leader or anybody taking this conflict and... Uh, using ramped up language, like that's really concerning. And so I think that it's incumbent on everybody to to speak carefully, to choose their words carefully. And I think you're seeing the vast, vast majority of politicians do that. Um, this needs to be a moment of bringing people mm-hmm. together um, around shared values, of dialogue, of tolerance in Canada. I was actually struck that the Prime Minister, you know, raised... Um, raised uh, Vivian Silver. And so, you know, she's a Israeli-Canadian uh, who we found out this week tragically uh, had been killed by Hamas on October 7th. And, and Vivian Silver gave, like, her entire life's work was building bridges of peace between Israelis and Palestinians. And so the reality is we're not going to solve this conflict here in Canada. No. And what we do need to do, though, is have safety for people in Canada who come from the Jewish community, who are Muslim Canadian, who are Palestinian Canadian, and that is something that we can have impact on. And so I think that um, as folks are choosing their words and, and thinking about where they're going to be, that's really important. And last thing I'll say is I think it's really important to, we have to reflect that when Netanyahu is tweeting back at the Prime Minister, that's also part of domestic internal politics happening Absolutely. within Israel. Yeah. And that what what he the line that he is out there pushing is not necessarily reflective 
of what mainstream Israelis are thinking, and that, that he actually right now is facing very, very low trust scores among the public there in Israel. And so he, there, you know, like it or not, there is also politics wrapped up in this that's happening there. And I think this week the prime minister got a bit of an elbow in that. So, Israel, it's interesting, like the, the Netanyahu tweet uh, that Jordan points out, I mean, that's coming as a, there's a shift in global opinion in some ways. There's a poll from Reuters today, Reuters Ipsos, that I saw. Support for Israel has dropped by nine percentage points, uh, this poll says, since it began. And this is in the U.S., right? Their most important ally in this. And ceasefire support has gone way up. I mean, so how do politicians approach this now? Well, it's when you, yeah, when you're looking at it from a political angle, you have to look at the idea that, as you know, as Jordan mentioned, Netanyahu's not necessarily the most popular guy and hasn't been mm-hmm. for quite some time. Like it wasn't that long ago that you know the Israelis were taking to the streets to you know protest mm-hmm. uh, some of his own policies that he had been putting forward. Um, and the circle, you know, the international global circle, it is tightening. You have you had Macron who's calling for a ceasefire, someone who would initially try to ban uh, as futile as it was, you know, pro-Palestinian. Uh, protests in France. Uh, you have uh, leaders like in South Africa uh, calling for, you know, Israel, what's happening uh, in Gaza to be referred to the International Criminal Court. There are, there are, you know, allies are kind of dropping like flies, if you will, because they see and they, you know, politically, they are also being affected domestically. And I think we're going to see that here as well. You see it in the United States, as you just laid out. Joe Biden is getting, you know, uh, hit in terms of like mm. very specific groups of supporters uh, who are saying, you know what, we're not, we, we will remember this. We don't approve of, of your stance on this. And you're going to feel it in the polls. And we don't know, yet know when our next election here in Canada is going to be. But people are going to remember. They're going to remember, you know, what MPs signed a letter calling for a ceasefire. They're going to remember, uh, you know, who they felt stood for them and with them as, you know, as Jewish Canadians. All of these things are going to play into uh, the political realm, and that's something that everybody is going to have to try to juggle. So, so Jonathan, on that, I mean, what are you looking for next um, from political leaders in this country uh, on this, you know, to sort of deal with this sense of fear and unease and and, and a lack of safety, you know, for, for your own person and your communities and your institutions? What are you looking to see? Well, I think, I think leaders, all politicians, need to continue to measure their words and understand that every word has a consequence. And I think that's the mistake the Prime Minister made last night, was that he was not careful with his words. Uh, and, you know, you're seeing it, um, it, it, you know, these triggering words that people react to, um, weigh them, measure them, and not use them as sort of pot shots to take... Uh, political swipes at your opponent, some are doing that and continue to do that. That's unfortunate because it's on the backs of communities, mine, but all communities who are involved in this, who are feeling vulnerable. And, you know, I, I, I understand that their intent is to be reassuring. But again, each of those words matter. And in terms of what they can do concretely, again, as I said, it's not Justin Trudeau who's going to go uh, arrest people. What I, what the one thing I took out of last night's speech that, that I was encouraged by um, was that it, he made it clear that uh, the RCMP is coordinating with Quebec and Montreal police, that additional resources are available, and that's that's something I've been wanting to hear for a couple weeks now. Yeah. Uh, if, if local police can't handle it, somebody's got to get on it because uh, we can't continue to live in fear. And again, that may be for other communities, but I know that right now the one that's actually being attacked most most violently, um, the words are not enough, and 
we can say that the yeah. platitudes aren't enough. There needs to be some action. And so I'm glad to see that there's some coordination going on. We need more of that as well. Okay. Uh, gang, it, it's a tough topic. Uh, it's been a tough five five weeks, uh, but I thank you all for, for working through it with me tonight. I want to thank the Power Panel, Sherelle Evelyn, Jordan Leichmitz, Tim Powers, and Jonathan Kalis. Thanks, gang. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.